through these months in the summer, we'll be spending some time in the psalm, the Psalter, the collection of books that we call the Psalms as a whole. And as you'll notice, as you look, make your way to Psalm 3, you'll notice that there is a superscription there that credits David as the author of this psalm. You'll also notice that it gives an occasion for the writing of this psalm when David fled from his son Absalom. And as you glance over these verses, you'll also notice that there is the word Selah after verses 2, 4, and 8, which indicate that this is a musical psalm, one that would have been sung and played. But remember, as we talked about in the first psalm, these psalms are not merely to be approached as musical pieces, but as God's truth to instruct us in how we are to live. That word Selah indicates that it is a musical pause, that it is a musical interlude, or it is a crescendo, and is not typically read as a part of the scripture since it is a musical indicator of what's taking place. Now, the setting of this psalm, when David fled from his son Absalom, you can follow that story beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we all are very familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba's adultery and how David had sent his men off to war and he had stayed back. And one night in his boredom, he glanced out over his domain and saw the lovely woman bathing. And even though she was married, he brought her to himself and he laid with her and she became pregnant. When David learned of this, rather than repenting of his sin, he tried to cover it up. And so he brought Uriah home from the war under false pretenses to get a report about the war. And as Uriah gathered with David and gave the report, David said, you've done a good job. Stay here for a couple of days. Go home and enjoy the pleasures that await you. Uriah was an upright man and refused to do so, saying that my men and your men are out at war. How could I do such a thing? I will instead sleep at the door of your palace. Well, David's plan was then foiled, and he had to come up with another plan. And so he had Uriah intoxicated, made sure that he had the influence of the alcohol in his system. And nonetheless, Uriah held firm in his conviction and did not go home. And because of that, there was no way that Bathsheba's pregnancy could be attributed to her husband, Uriah. So David plans again to fix this and has Uriah sent to the front line at the fiercest part of the battle, instructs the troops to withdraw from him so the Uriah would be shot down and killed. And thus David has not only committed adultery, but he is now guilty of Uriah's death and his murder. As this rises to the God of David, he sends the prophet Nathan and issues this rebuke, and we read this in Second Samuel chapter 12. And through the prophet Nathan, David says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And so David's sin set forth in motion this tragedy that was now going to dictate how David's family's lives were lived under the content and the context 
of David's sin. David's life from this point forward, his family becomes a tragic story on so many levels that it's unbelievable and overwhelming, but nonetheless it is true. As we look at our psalm, there are eight verses. Each of these verses, excuse me, there's four sections, each made up of two verses, and this again will make up our outline for our message today. So let's begin reading in Psalm 3. And verse 1, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people. Well, this psalm is divided up into four sections. And the first section we're going to see here is very simply David's cry. David's cry to the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. Now, if you remember from last week, we looked at this in Psalm 2, that David is God's anointed. He is God. He is the God-chosen king of Israel. Now, we talk in very general terms about the anointing of the Holy Spirit or the anointing of God. But to say that he is the anointed of God is a very unique Description. It is a very unique privilege to be called God's anointed because in doing so, it, it is a consideration that this individual has now become God's son. This is, again, typologically referencing Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus is a type of David, but he is a perfect David. And so as we remember who David is, that he is God's anointed, here he is with enemies all around him seeking his life because of the sin that he had committed. David's cry is the result of the opposition that he is facing, and it is identified by three different groupings. Number one, David's cry is against his enemies. Verse one, how my adversaries have increased. So the original group that became the enemy of David was led by his son Absalom. It was a small group of around 50 men who were loyal to Absalom, but David is now identifying that this group is beginning to grow. If we were to take a look in depth at 2 Samuel chapter 15, it indicates that Absalom had had about 50 men who were loyal to him, and it explains how Absalom was successful in growing the opposition and capturing the hearts of his people. So here's kind of what takes place is when when David sins with Bathsheba, David already has several wives, and he has many children from these different wives. His firstborn is Amnon, and Amnon has a half-sister named Tamar, and Tamar has a brother named Absalom. If you remember the story, Amnon looks at Tamar with lust and rapes her, And Absalom avenges her rape and has Amnon killed. When Amnon is killed, Absalom flees, trying to preserve his own life. And so he is in exile for a number of years. 
So finally, Joab, one of David's advisors, petitions the king to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. And he does so, but David says, I will not look upon my son. He can come back, but I don't want anything to do with him. So for four years, Absalom goes to the edge of the city at the gates where the judge would normally sit. And as Israelites would come, he would say, who are you and where are you from and what is your problem? If only I were the king, I would act on your behalf. I would give my ear to you, unlike the current king. And over a period of about four years, Absalom was successful in capturing the hearts of the people by creating the perception that David was negligent in his responsibility as the king, and if only Absalom was the king, all of this would be different. And so this takes place for four years, and during this time, the opposition begins to grow. So the second group that we see is that David is now crying against his growing opposition. Not only are there enemies, but many are rising up against me. Second Samuel fifteen six says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people and was therefore successful in growing the opposition against David. Now the choice of words here is very important because Absalom is guilty of stealing the hearts of the people. He was not going to be a better king. He was not really dealing with a negligent king, but he had misrepresented the king's role and position and actions and under false pretense stole the hearts of the nation of Israel. So now David is the one with a very small group that is loyal to him and Absalom has the nation of Israel behind him. What was once a covert rebellion led by Absalom against his father David is now become an open and a growing rebellion against David the king. It is so bad that David is crying against the skeptics that are out there. Verse 2 says, Many are saying there is no deliverance for him in God. Now that word deliverance means salvation. It's not salvation in the sense that I was once lost and now I am saved. Deliverance and salvation are somewhat synonymous. It simply means that God is going to provide our rescue. Think about it in terms of the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea was the deliverance of the nation of Israel from impending death by the Egyptian army. So the people didn't believe that God was going to save David from this growing rebellion against him. In fact, it has gotten so bad that David has led the immediate area and has gone to the outskirts of the region. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5-8, through 8, it says, When King David came to Baharium, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Everybody was surrounding Shimei. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul and whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. The nation of Israel believed that David was going to die. The rebellion had been so successful and so widespread 
that David's cry to the Lord is, is, an, is really an escalation from his adversaries to this growing opposition to behold the entire nation is now against me. Now, like you, I have faced many difficulties in my life. I've faced some, real hard, faced some real hardships in my life, not knowing what was going to come. But I could not even begin to imagine the kind of difficulty that I would be facing if one of my sons was leading the nation in rebellion against me with the goal of seeing me killed. I would say that that's really about as bad as it gets. Couldn't imagine it being any worse than it was for David. Now, I want to go back to the very first words that we read together in this psalm. And those very first words are, O Lord. David's cry, O Lord, is the New Testament equivalent of Abba, Father. The crying out that we hear coming from David communicates an absolute dependency upon God that was not there at the time of his sin. It communicates an intimacy with God, not only as God, but as my Father, the one who loves me and the one that I truly depend upon. It is David crying out and calling upon his heavenly Father to do what only he can do. David had no way out. David did not have the means to overthrow this rebellion against him. He was truly dependent upon the Lord to become his deliverer once again. Well, we need to recognize, because David is a type of the Messiah, is that this is our same help in our time of trouble. It is, O Lord, it is Abba Father, it is the one who loves me and can only do for me what needs to be done because I cannot do it for myself. So we see David's cry here, but we see that David's cry is set against his confidence. Even though David is facing these overwhelming obstacles and this overwhelming rebellion against him that is seeking the end of his life, David is in a position of absolute confidence. When we face overwhelming odds, even when we face life and death circumstances, in contrast to the enormity of those circumstances, we can be confident just as David was. David says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, how different is his God from the rebellious masses. How different is his God from the overwhelming, overwhelming circumstances that he faces. David expresses this great confidence in God in four very clear ways. Number one, David is confident in God's protection. Verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David places himself securely under the Lord's protection by saying that you are a shield about me. Just as God has protected David against the giant Goliath, and just as God had protected David from the king Saul, who was also seeking his life, and just as God had protected David from all his enemies and conquering the land and possessing the land that God had given the nation of Israel, so would God also protect David from this rebellion up against him. In the New Testament, as we looked at in the end of Ephesians, we would call this the shield of faith. 
It is our confidence in God to protect us in such a way that we are protected from the front and from the back and from above and from below. Regardless of how overwhelmed we are by our enemies, we can place ourselves under the shield of faith and in David's terms, the shield that God places about him. David is confident in God's protection. Number two, David is confident in God's power. Now I'm going to supply this, the but you, O Lord, because it doesn't say that, but I'm going to remind you of what David is saying and why he is confident. In verse three again, but you, O Lord, are my glory. Now this is a little bit of an unusual phrase here, but the power of God is referred to by the word glory. The phrase signifies the Lord's glorious rule over his kingdom because of the power that he possesses. God's glory is partly due to his position and his power. We would say that God in his glory spoke all of creation into existence. It is his immense power that enabled him to do that, and that immense power is also a part of God's glory. He is the Lord of hosts, and he has the ability to call tens of thousands of angels at his command to deliver his people from impending death. Even as a king can be described as glorious because of his huge army, so the Lord is called glorious because he can call the angelicos at a moment's notice to help his children. David puts his confidence in the protection that God alone can provide because his glory is greater than any and all human power. You know, when we say that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that means something. It means that God is greater and more powerful than any human force. In fact, you could gather all of the world forces against God and it would be nothing for God to overwhelm and to conquer them. David had absolute confidence in God's power. Thirdly, David is confident in God's promise. But you, O Lord, are the one who lifts my head. David was confident in the covenant that God made with him when he was coronated as the king of Israel. If we go back and look at Psalm 2 that we looked at last week, God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. What God has installed, no man is going to overthrow. The son speaks, the anointed one speaks from this installation in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nation as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You see, David was confident in the promises of God because he did not install him as the king over Israel to rescind that position simply because David sinned. Isn't it great to know that our sin does not disqualify us from our unique position as the children of God? It doesn't mean that we can sin without any threat of consequence. It doesn't mean that we can sin without any thought to the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. But that sin does not negate our relationship with the Lord. And this, in a sense, of what David is celebrating, he's celebrating his confidence in God's promises. Now, when he says that the Lord is going to lift his head, the lifting of the head signifies victory Over the enemies, it is deliverance from the circumstances that cause us to be downcast. 
When someone is moping, when someone is filled with sorrow, you see them looking at their shoes, and what you want to do is you want to come along and speak words of encouragement, and you want to lift their countenance, right? There's a physical lifting of the head when our countenance and our attitude and our perspective changes. David expresses this far more clearly in Psalm 27, verses 5 and 6. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So David has supreme confidence in the promise that God has made that he is going to remain the king of Israel and that he will be delivered from these enemies. Number four, David is confident in God's provision. Verse four reads, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. You see, David's confidence lies in his prayers before the Lord. Not in his strength, not in his righteous deeds done in the past, not in the potential, but in the gracious promises of God that he will hear the prayers of his people. In our moments of great despair, when our soul feels itself abandoned by everyone else, Comfort may be drawn from the assurance that God answers our prayers. Now, he doesn't always say yes, does he? A lot of times God says, not yet. The time has not been appointed for this to change yet. And this is what David finds himself in. There's not an immediate deliverance in his life at the end of this prayer, at the end of this crying out. But in the face of great opposition, David was confident in the Lord. And as a result of that, we see, number three, David's contentment. In the face of this growing rebellion, in the face of these life and death circumstances, David found contentment. His contentment is expressed in these two very simple ways. Number one, he is free from anxiety. Verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. David's confidence is in his standing before the Lord. And the standing that he has before the Lord allows him to enjoy the peace that comes from knowing God. I wonder how many times you and I fret and wring our hands and find an inability to sleep when we're facing tremendous difficulty in our life. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know what's going to happen. We theoretically believe in a God who is and who will act on our behalf. But that belief doesn't always translate into our peace, into our contentment, because we want the circumstances to change now. Yet God has something for us that he wants us to learn. David finds great contentment. He is free from anxiety. He is able to sleep. He has awoken from his sleep. And he rejoices in God's continued ability to sustain him. That word sustain means to rest 
or to support. God is providing the rest. God is providing the support for David. And because of that, he is free from anxiety. Rather than being filled with despair, David has hope because he completely trusts in God and in his promises. You know, the New Testament equivalent to this, I automatically thought of Philippians chapter 4. We read these words, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result of that trust that is expressed in prayer, we see in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, often we lack peace. Because we lack confidence in God. We're not free from anxiety because we don't fully trust in his promises. But we have to know that because we are God's children, he hears our prayers and he will act in his own will, in his own time, for his own glory and for our good when God is ready to do that. David is free from anxiety in the face of life and death. Number two, David is also free from fear. He says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Now, David is speaking in both a literal and a figurative sense here. The many that we see referenced in verse 1 is now more directly connected here with the mentioning of ten thousands, which likely means a large multitude or myriads of people. He's being hunted by a very large group of people. And in Second Samuel, as you read through that, it identifies that there are literally many thousands of people who are pursuing him. And yet David is already figuratively surrounded by these enemies because they are so numerous. But he also means to say that even if he were literally surrounded in an encampment by thousands of men, he would not fear. So he's a fool, right? What do you mean you could be in the midst of thousands of people who want to kill you and you would not fear? Well, he doesn't fear because God sustains him. God is faithful to his promises. God answers David's prayer. David trusts in the sovereignty of God. He is the Lord's anointed, and he fully trusts in God. He expresses this again more clearly in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is free from anxiety and he is free from fear because he fully trusts in God. So the question for us today is, what do we do in the face of these overwhelming overwhelming circumstances that you and I are going to come up against in our life? When there seems to be no way, when there seems to be no answer, when it feels like it's life and death, How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond in despair? Will we stay in a position of despair? Or will we, like David, cry out, Oh Lord, my Father, I call out and I depend upon you. We see David's call now in the face of this overwhelming overwhelming circumstance that he has. And David's call is a call to action. 
This is different from his crying out. This call is asking God to act on his behalf. As David cried out, he identified the problem. And here, David is asking God to act on his behalf in light of the problem that David is facing. So David's call to action, number one, is to rescue him. He says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. It's not as if God has been asleep and God has been inattentive. God is just not acting yet. And so David is calling the Lord to action to rescue him from his adversaries. He's asking God to manifest his presence and his power on David's behalf and to deliver him from these enemies. This is in response to the group that's been identified in in verse 1 who believe that there is no deliverance for David. The masses are saying, David is a dead man. And David is saying, God, I trust in you to rescue me from this impending death. I am calling on you, God, to act on my behalf and to save me. Fulfill your promises to me as the anointed that were given to me at the coronation ceremony when I pledged loyalty to the covenant. God, I'm calling you to rescue me. Secondly, David's call to action is one to defeat his enemies. He says in verse 7, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now what I think is interesting here is that David is speaking in the past tense as if these enemies have already been defeated. The terms here that David uses, when you smite an enemy on the cheek, it refers to breaking the jaw, which is a means of severe humiliation of the enemy. And in the breaking of that jaw, you're likely going to shatter the teeth of the individual. And so what David is really doing is he is comparing his enemies, the adversaries who are seeking to kill him, he's comparing them to wild animals. And when their jaw is broken and their teeth are shattered, they have no means to devour me. He is asking God to take care of these enemies on his, on his behalf so that they will not accomplish their plans to overthrow God's anointed. As David is praying, calling out to God, claiming victory in the past tense, as if it has already happened, you and I, in a similar way, pray for our victory that has already been secured through the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We pray for that victory to be realized not only in our lives, but in the eternity that we will one day enjoy. We act as if, we think as if the victory is already ours, even though we have not yet experienced that victory. Make no mistake about it. God's enemies have already been conquered through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We pray to see that conquering realized in our lives. And make no mistake about it, one day we will. We thank God for what he has already done on our behalf, even though we have not yet experienced his provision. Number three, David's call to action is one to bless the nation. Verse 8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Just like we saw earlier, that word salvation means deliverance. Synonymous terms, meaning that God is going to be the one that provides deliverance to his people 
He is the one and his deliverance is the means by which the people are blessed. It is the blessing of his presence. It is the blessing of his protection. It is the blessing of the fulfillment of his promises. And David is very simply calling on God to fulfill these promises in a way that only God can. Now remember, David, as the anointed one, is also a typological reference for Christ. Because of that, all that David expresses in this psalm, you and I can claim and call today. It's just as valid for us today as it was for David because we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior covering us, providing for us, protecting us, and fulfilling the promises that God has made to us as His children. We are the people of God who, like the Anointed One, have been adopted by the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit based upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You know, you and I are always going to face difficulty in our life. There's never a shortage of overwhelming obstacles that we are going to face. No matter what they are, no matter how severe and extreme they feel to us, we are compelled to call upon the Lord, to cry out before Him, to be able to rest in our standing with Him, and to expect the fulfillment of His promise to us, as, to us as His children. Not because of anything that we have done, not because there's something special about us, but because we are His children and we are in a right standing with Him. What will we do when we face the difficulties? You know, that question is never asked if you face the difficulties. It's asked when you face the difficulties. Will you turn to Him or will you turn to someone else? Will you turn to something else? We see in the psalm that we are to turn to him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, how we give you thanks that you are fully trustworthy, that we can have absolute confidence in who you are and what you're doing and what you will do based upon your sovereign will. And that doesn't mean everything's going to go our way. It doesn't mean that all the obstacles are just going to vanish because we've cried out to you. But we can trust you because you are a good God. You are a holy God. You are a faithful God. And we rejoice and celebrate in the love that you've shown us through Christ, the continuing provision that you make for our life. God, would you please grow our trust in you? Would we find victory in our difficulties? Would we find rest because we are yours? God, would you teach us how to truly incline our hearts towards you so that we will experience your presence through all the days of our life, no matter how difficult they are. We give you thanks that you are the source of our blessing. We thank you for the way you have blessed us as your people. May we be a blessing to you as we live for you and as we love you with a growing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.